Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 25 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa faces tough questions in Parliament and UN Commission on the Status of Women Meets in New York. In economics news, electricity prices to increase by 9% in South Africa and in sports news, pirates to play against FC Platinum in CAF Champions League. But first up, the news. With Anne Musa. A very good evening to you. A rather very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Algerian President Abdelaziz Bouteflika has issued his first warning to protesters who have taken to the streets in thousands to demand an end to his 20-year rule, saying the unrest could destabilize the country. In the latest demonstration, hundreds of lawyers in black robes rallied in downtown Algiers on Thursday as momentum gathered in the country's most sustained protest since the 2000 and 11 Arab Spring. Bouteflika has not spoken in public since suffering a stroke in 2013 and is staying in a hospital in Geneva. But in a letter reported by state news agency APS, he said breaking the peaceful expression by any treacherous internal or foreign group may lead to sedition and chaos and resulting crises and woes. The National Electoral Commission of Guinea-Bissau has responded to protests from several politicians who had called for a cancellation to adding a voters list ahead of Sunday's legislative elections. The Commission's decision to authorize the additional list had provoked the Social Renewal Party and the Movement for Democratic Change, which described it as illegal. Some 761,000 voters are called to the polls on Sunday to elect the new 102-member Guinea-Bissau Parliament. The latter will be chosen from candidates from 21 political parties. A prominent lawyer close to detained Cameroonian opposition leader Maurice Kamtu has been charged with rebellion. Michelle Ndoki's lawyer says she was placed in custody and charged with the same offences as Kamtu. Cameroon this week rejected U.S. criticism of the detention of Kamtu and dozens of supporters, insisting that it was not politically motivated. Kamtu, head of the opposition movement for the rebirth of Cameroon, claims he was cheated out of victory when Paul Bia was elected to a seventh term as president in last October's election. The medical charity Doctors Without Borders says the response to the Ebola outbreak in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo is failing to bring the epidemic under control. The situation is making it hard for the virus to be tracked. The BBC's Emotion Folks reports. Attempts by the authorities in DRC to force people to comply with Ebola control measures have proved counterproductive. There have been dozens of attacks on health workers. Meanwhile, Ebola victims stay in hiding, 
No one knows where they are or who they have been in contact with. MSF says the Ebola response must change. No more coercion to track and treat patients and more choice for families on how to manage the disease. And finally, as part of celebrating International Women's Day, the World Food Programme is urging the Southern Africa region to change its eating habits. WFP says the inclusion of women and girls in policy making will accelerate progress toward food security. The United Nations theme this year is Think Equal, Blind, uh, Bold, Smart, Innovate for Change. Regional Director WFP Lola Castro. In Southern Africa, women are the ones who basically produce food, prepare food, and distribute the food in the family and household. So it's extremely important that we think of women equally. So it is very important that the women are are given at the school adequate training or capacities to be able to prepare a diversified food at home. And that's the New Zealand's at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Let's talk about it. I'm Joe Mangria. And I'm Tabisa Jala. Join us at 9 a.m. Central African time. Let's, Let's talk, talk about it. A program on AIDS and other social issues. A program that will encourage a positive lifestyle to young people affected and infected. Let's, Let's talk, talk about, about it at 9 a.m. Central African time on Channel Africa. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa was grilled on issues around state capture emanating from the Zonda Commission of Inquiry into state capture, as well as issues around the struggling power utility ESCOM and his family allegedly benefiting from deals between independent power producers and the power utility. Ramaphosa answered questions in the National Assembly. This was his last answer session in the fifth parliament as the national legislature is rising in the next two weeks. Zaline Merrington reports. Ramaphosa's immediate and extended family came under scrutiny during his last oral question session for the fifth parliament. DA leader Musi Maimani challenged him to provide figures for the contract his son Andile has with Posasa, now known as African Global Operations. Ramaphosa had a short answer. It's a fairly straightforward answer. The, the public protector... <laughs> the public protector is, is, is busy with this whole matter. And all information, all information has been submitted to the public protector by myself, a number of people, as well as my son. So the contract that he had for assist, for doing work for them outside the country is a matter that is now with the public protector. The Honorable Mkhalipi. Madam Speaker. 
Are you rising on a point of order? Yes, Madam Honorable. Speaker. What's the point of order? It's rule 1426 of the National Assembly rules. What now, is the point? The President has indicated that he's given information to the public protector. The President is accountable in terms of this constitution to this parliament, not the public protector. This is a parliamentary question, and he can't duck out of it. If it's so straightforward, he needs to give us the number. How much? <laughs> the President has given you an answer. Then the EFF MP Lenguem Kalipi asked Ramaphosa about a conflict of interest involving his brother, as well as two brothers-in-law who are somehow involved in the energy sector. We know that you and your family, Mr. President, are direct beneficiaries of IPPs, and it was your brother-in-law, the Minister of Energy, who signed the latest set of IPPs, putting billions of friends in the pocket of Petrus Motsepe. Who also, who also is a brother-in-law. Now, Mr. President, are you willing to say that to the South African people that there is no conflict of interest in the IPP deals? But Ramaphosa assured the House that his family has made a conscious decision not to do business with the state. My brother Douglas runs his own matters. He and I don't share any business. What he does is his own business. He's in, you say, power tech, I didn't even know. My brother-in-law, Patrice Motsepe, runs his own business. I don't get involved in his business. And I am not a beneficiary of his business. Now, my brother-in-law, Minister Jeff Khadebe, he does his work in terms of all the rules that govern all of us. Now, is there a conflict of interest? I would argue there's no conflict of interest. He was also questioned about the urgency with which action will be taken against members of cabinet that have been implicated by witnesses who appeared before the Zondo Commission. The governing party was brave enough to bear its own chest and appoint a commission of inquiry so that we can go to the root of the corruption that has bedeviled our country over the past few years. What the commission, what they will be recommending, we will follow up and implement. And in this regard, we are not taking the people of our country or South Africa for a ride. We are extremely serious. That report by Zaline Merrington. South Africa's ruling ANC chief whip in Parliament, Jackson Mtembu, says the party is worried about the results of the latest poll that shows its support standing at just under 55%. The poll also shows the party falling way below the 50% mark in the province of Gauteng. Mtembu says, however, that the results will galvanize them to work even harder. He says their aim is to return with an increased majority after the May elections. Joseph The ANC held its last caucus meeting before members depart to go and prepare for the May elections. Party President Cyril Ramaphosa used the opportunity to issue what Jackson Mtembu says were marching orders to go and campaign for the party. But Mtembu admits that it will be a difficult task given some of the mistakes the party has committed. The Constitutional Court found in 2017 that Parliament had failed to hold former President Jacob Zuma to account on the Nkandla matter.
Mtembu says they have committed themselves to never repeat these mistakes. In the five years, yes, there were a bit difficult times, uh, but of course we are just human. We have committed errors. And in the errors that we have committed, we are very much sorry. But a commitment we make is that we will not repeat those errors. As the Parliament of the Republic of South Africa, whether in the 6th Parliament, in the 7th Parliament, because we have learned from our own mistakes. On Wednesday, the Institute for Race Relations released the results of a poll it conducted in February that shows ANC support dropping to below 55% nationally and below 50% in Gauteng. Mtembo says the ANC is very worried by the outcomes of the poll. Definitely. The polling worries us. That we are very low in Gauteng worries us greatly. We are very concerned. There's no way we cannot be concerned. That also, we have gone down from the 56% in the previous polling to around uh, to a less 1.3% at national level. It worries us. There's no way we cannot be worried. He added, however, that the negative polling will in fact make sure that the party is galvanized and united. When we are worried, we even forget about our factions. When we are worried, you, you will see us at work. When we are threatened with losing state power, you know, we, because we, we, we have seen that these coalitions never assist our people. And we are not working towards being in a coalition government, even in Gauteng, by the way. We are working on being the governing party there. South Africa's ruling ANC chief whip, Jackson Mtembu, ending that report by Joseph Mosia in South Africa's parliament. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, an interactive session on the Africa-China relations took place at the University of South Africa in the capital, Pretoria. The constant rhetoric of win-win cooperation between China and Africa has never adequately answered the simple structural question at the heart of the relationship. Key speakers at the seminar included former South Africa's President Tabombeki, Chinese Ambassador to South Africa at Lin Shong Tiang. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Paul Dembe from the Tabombeki African Leadership Institute and Associate Professor at the Institute of African Studies, Zhejiang Normal University. Good morning, Doc, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Yeah, good morning to you and thank you for having me. 
Now, Dr. Tembe, is this the first time an initiative like this of discussing China been taken at the highest level by a South African dignitary like former President uh, Tabombeki? Yes, it is the first time in the sense that most hype about China is usually around BRICS, FOCAC, when there's a seminar here, when there's a conference in South Africa. But this initiative uh, is the first time that a continental China-Africa subject is taken seriously and it is taken at this level. What are the issues that featured predominantly at the seminar? The issues that features at the, door, uh, the, at, at the seminar, it was the issue of the changes of globalization, that uh, we shouldn't look as, as China solely as a newcomer into the world game, but that China is changing the game itself, that we, for the first time, we have a, a type of globalization that features prominently the aspect of negotiated relationships, because the globalization that we are used to, so to speak, like neoliberal uh, globalization, as it is understood, it seems as if the poverty of others and others becoming rich is the norm, like oxygen, that we need to breathe. But what China is trying to show us, or what we see in our relation as Africa with China, is that there is another form of globalization whereby we can have a win-win uh, situation. Now, what is the win-win cooperation between Africa and China? Obviously, there's pros and cons in any um, negotiation or any uh, relationship going forward. What are these uh, win-win cooperations? The win-win cooperation is that China listens to what Africa needs and then Africa also listens to what China needs. Let me give you a scenario. A scenario is whereby China says, look, I need to invest in Africa because I need mineral resources from Africa. Look, I need the African market. And then we say as Africa, okay, can you help us with industrialization? Can you help us with infrastructure so that we can industrialize? Can you then help us with uh, the human resource development? which are the three arms of China's engagement in Africa at this point in time. It is in the infrastructure, it is in the human resource development, and it is in financing. Now, Dr. Tembe, can you explain the nature of South Africa-China relations at this point in time? And uh, in terms of going forward, what sort of relations are, is South Africa, for instance, looking forward to with China? Look, uh, the change in China, Africa, in South Africa-China relations specifically started with uh, the forecast that was held in 2015 in South Africa. Uh, that forecast marked a significant, uh, a, a, a significant turn in the sense that we see that in terms of the trade volume between China and South Africa, it went very high. That's number one. Number two, that resulted that in 2017, we then have what we call people-to-people exchange mechanism being introduced, which, by the way, was uh, inaugurated here in South Africa. So we see that uh, the, this, tra- this relationship has gone away now from 
the politics and trade only. We're looking into issues of culture. We're looking into the grassroots understanding China, the grassroots South Africans understanding China. And the event yesterday, the interactive event, was just one of those whereby the Chinese embassy was in place to explain uh, the Chinese position in Africa. Umdate uh, Thabongbegi, the former president, was there to explain the benefits that Africa might have or might gain from China. But what also uh, His Excellency, former president, expressed was the fact that we need to use the spaces provided by China in order for us as a continent to be able to position the to position ourselves globally. That now, is speaking... not an isolated, that is the win-win aspect as well, that China-Africa relation is not only isolated to China-Africa, but it, it helps Africa reposition itself globally and in other high multilateral bodies. Now, speaking of repositioning itself, what's Africa's position in the world and in terms of Africa's presence? Is the presence being felt in the international system? The, the presence of Africa is felt in the international system. It's felt very much because it's felt in the sense that most conferences and multilateral uh, meetings take place in Africa with international players and Africa is invited to G8 and to all those other meetings. But the issue at hand here is that is there a coherent and organized arm that addresses the world as to what Africa really wants? So yesterday also one of the issues that was touched, it was to strengthen, we like to see a strengthened AU. It means we need to see a strengthened African Union that will be able to deliver public goods to Africa. Uh, Dr. Tembe, now that we live in a multipolar international system, would you say China is now a world leader, as a number of people have come out and stated? If yes, how so? China itself won't come out and say that it's a world leader. That is simply because of the trajectory of history. Former world leaders have sort of bullied the South. Let us say the Global North has historically bullied the Global South. So what China likes to do, that is why we have this notion of of a win-win situation. China is the world leader in the sense that it is changing the game, it is creating a new game. Here we see distribution of goods or distribution of capital from the onset of the system as it builds a new form of globalization. So we're not going to, in the long run, have this so-called redistribution of capital. So we see as China develops, China is developing along with its partners. That's in that way we can speak of all the financial arms of China-Africa cooperation that are here in the form of BRICS Bank, in the form of China-Africa Fund. So China, it is developing with its partners. So it is a world leader of a specific kind. Of course, in terms of numbers, China is the the second uh, world economy at the moment.
Now, are we likely to see China changing its policy towards the African continent? considering the fact that at this point in time, there's reports of China's economic slowdown. No, 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 no. On the contrary. On the contrary. What, what, what the, the, this, this lack that we see in China, we are moving away from uh, uh, export-based, because China, China's growth has been based on the, has been export-dependent. We are seeing China moving away from the export-based uh, growth from China. What you are going to see, we are going to see China creating pockets of production all over Africa. And that's uh, various infrastructures that we have all over Africa at the moment. Dr. Tembe, unfortunately, I would have loved to take this further, but we have run out of time. We'll have to leave it there for now. Okay, thank you very much. And thank you, you too. That's Dr. Paul Dembe from the Tabumbeki African Leadership Institute and an associate professor at the Institute of African Studies at Shijiang Normal University joining us on the line. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9am with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective Hospitals and clinics in South Africa's Gauteng province are struggling to cope with the increasing number of undocumented patients seeking medical care. They say this is putting a strain on resources. A recent study conducted by the city of Johannesburg in 66 of its 81 clinics has found that close to 40% of South African and foreign nationals who visit their clinics present themselves without any valid documentation. This comes in the wake of of calls by Gauteng Province Premier David Makura to charge countries of foreign nationals who come to Gauteng hospitals and clinics. Angela Bulwana has more. Johannesburg Mayor Herman Mashaba wants government to relook their funding model to municipalities. He lamented the financial and resource burden placed on the city's healthcare facilities by undocumented patients, both foreign and South African. Mashaba says while the constitution compels them to treat everyone that comes to the health facilities, national and provincial governments need to recognize the magnitude of the people that they care for when allocating budgets. He says many of these undocumented patients come to their facilities at the last minute, particularly pregnant women. Mayoral spokesperson Luyanda Mfeka says some of the medicine obtained by these undocumented patients is used in the illicit drug trade. It's very difficult to track whether whether one person accesses one healthcare facility or another. Um, and part of and part of where these kinds of medicines are typically thought to end up is either within the black market trade in one form or another. And what we're trying and what, what we're also saying as a city is that so long as that we can't regulate who is coming into the facility um, and utilizing resources therein, 
there is always the risk that those resources in the form of medicine end up in the wrong hands and in the wrong space. A study by the city of Joburg has found that the number of undocumented patients increased from 32,000 to 83,000 in the last two years. The Yeovil Clinic, for instance, saw 12,800 undocumented people in 2018, which is 52% of the patients they treated. Hikensile Clinic had 12,000 undocumented patients, which was 75% of their patients, while Mpumelelo and Rivali Clinics saw 99% and 98% respectively of undocumented patients in 2018. Gautem Premier David Makura suggested that foreign patients should pay for services through their embassies. Makura was talking about how to work with foreign governments to curb a number of issues including crime. But how do we have so many drug dens that are operated by Nigerians in our country? Too many of your citizens are involved in this type of crime in our country. You remember I said with health we must collect the money? It's not xenophobia. We work with that government to say we've got to solve it. Your, your citizens are free to come to our country, but they contribute to a problem. Nessus Union Dinosa has also raised alarm, saying that midwives were particularly under pressure. Dinosa Secretary Lebu Nkwana says most undocumented pregnant women come at the last minute with birth complications. And honestly speaking, the staff tend to be exhausted and bent out because of these undocumented patients, but not only because of that, because of their shortage in nature, because nurses are so short, you can imagine having six midwives in a labor ward having to deliver one, uh, about 15 deliveries a day. So the system is not coping at all, but we are hoping that perhaps a uh, turnaround plan is there in the department to come uh, as speedily as possible to come and assist in changing around the system. Democratic Nursing Organization of South Africa Secretary Lebungwana ending that report by Angela Bulana in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Guinea-Bissau's Electoral Commission responds to protests from several politicians that called for a cancellation to adding a voters list ahead of Sunday's legislative elections. A court in Sudan overturns prison sentences handed down last week to eight protesters and orders their release. And women in Kenya to hold street marches in major towns across the country to demand an end to gender-based violence and femicide. Those are the stories making headlines. Abari, etise, mache, mingabo, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Channel Africa. Culture and Joy, Addis Ababa. 
Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ngatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. It's 8.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our South Africa's Northwest Provincial Health Department is urging parents to give consent for the human papilloma virus HPV campaign in schools. The campaign targeted at all grade 4 girls aged 9 aims to reduce the incidence of cervical cancer before the learners are exposed to the infection. The national campaign campaign will run twice a year across the country. Over 500,000 new cases of cervical cancer were diagnosed worldwide last year. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by the department's manager for women's health, Gilebukhile Gyutaile. Good morning, Gilebukhile, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lily. Now Thank talk to us. Great stuff. Now talk to us about about this national campaign and the importance of vaccinating for HPV. Uh, good morning, also to the listeners. Uh, my name is Kilewhele Kiyotaile. I'm the program manager for women's health in the Northwest Province, and also responsible for integrated school health program, which is a very program that is taking services in schools to make sure that we deliver health service delivery. But maybe what I should just uh, try, uh, start by indicating is that uh, the National Department of Health has declared uh, this month of February and March the National HPV Cancer Campaign, where we go to the schools and we immunize learners that are nine years and above. And this campaign comes twice in a year. So for now, it has started in February, it's going to end in, on the 15th of March. So it's a whole month campaign where I mean, learners are getting vaccinated by the HPV team, which are comprising of health professionals that go to schools to do outreach and make sure that they vaccinate learners against the, I mean, the, the cervical cancer disease. Now, what sort of response have you had from um, parents, guardians, caregivers since the start of the campaign? Are they forthcoming? Do they have an understanding? Or does it have to come with an educational program before they give consent? You know, this is a very critical program. And you would understand that most of the learners are at schools without the parents or without the caregivers. So before the campaign can start or before any health service delivery can be done at schools, uh, there's this social mobilization that is going, that is happening at all the schools that are affected. The learners are being given information prior to the campaign so that they know what they will be getting. And we also mobilize the whole school community. You remember that the teachers are also there, the parents are not there, but we do have the school governing bodies. Where we go to schools and we market the problem, make sure that we explain so that we don't have resistance from the parents because somebody. The parents are, are, are all into responding positively, but there will be that fraction where parents are not responding. But there are many reasons why parents are not responding. Well, if I could just touch on why some parents are not uh, responding. Yes, please for go ahead. Program, yeah, for this program, we do have uh, the consent form. We don't just go to schools and vaccinate. We mobilize first. But during that mobilization also, consent forms are being handed in to the parents. 
so that the parents can find the consent. Because remember, the parents are there. I mean, the learners are there without the parents. So the parents give us consent and we also give information to the learners to say this is what is going to be given to you and expect to see some mild side effects like one, two, three, so that they also understand that this might not be uh, the, the, the reaction maybe or some 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 dissatisfaction that are coming from the parents should be addressed before the the, the, girl, the learners get a vaccine. And maybe what we should also explain is that we only give it to the learners, I mean girls, not boys, even though HPV is one of the virus types that also affect both sexes, which is the males and the females. But because now we want to prevent cervical cancer, which is rise in our uh, healing our women, we make sure that we give the learners that are still young before they can start engaging in sexual intercourse. So that's why we are prioritizing them. But mostly parents that are not consenting, it will be reasons like not knowing what uh, the purpose was, because other parents, when they are called, they don't come, and the consent forms are being sent to the parents, the parents may be uh, failed to sign because they did not understand, or others don't even know how to write, so they cannot be held accountable because you need to go to the bottom of why parents are not signing, so that they can explain to you that I can't sign, I can't write, that's why I did not sign, but we normally make sure that we cover those parents, we talk to them, we talk to the principals, they go to an extent of uh, getting verbal consent from the parents, and talking to the parents and agreeing so that the children do not miss the doses as expected by, by the Department of Health. Now, let's speak about the importance of uh, vaccinating against, um, you know, the HPV at, at this particular age, nine years. Why particular nine years? You remember that we, 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 we want to give it to those, I said we want to give it to people that are still not sexually active. Remember, if somebody is not sexually active, this virus is, is transmitted through sexual intercourse. So if the learners are still young, we, we think that they are naive, they are not engaging in sexual intercourse, so there's limited infections in them. So we expect that we build resistance or we build antibodies while the child is still young so that when they start engaging in sexual intercourse, the infection can no longer turn them, I mean, uh, uh, get to the bottom of maybe making them sick with regard to cervical cancer. But you know that uh, every sexual intercourse, can transmit a lot of viruses. So only this HPV that we are giving is for type 16 and 18. There's a whole lot of types for HPV. We have a, more than 200 types of HPV that causes other cancers, not, not only cervical cancer. But cervical cancer has, has proved that it's one of the killing cancer. That's why it's been prioritized in the vaccine. We make sure that we prevent those cancers before the children can start engaging in sexual intercourse. Now, the vaccine has been used in over 100 countries globally. Talk to us about how it's worked, firstly, whether successfully or not in those particular countries where, where it has been used, and uh, in terms of the prevention. So far, we have, we have uh, seen positive stories coming out from the U.S. You remember that in South Africa, this vaccine was only introduced in 2014, and uh, other countries have been using this quite years back before we can start introducing this. But the success stories that we have heard and we have seen from other countries is that uh, this vaccine, vaccine is really working. If learners can be given this vaccine at an early age, it can really protect them from getting this uh, infection. 
So there are some success stories that have been documented outside the country. But here in South Africa, because we just started 2014, studies are still continuing so that we can make sure that we say uh, we have managed to reduce maybe the burden of cervical cancer. But it's still only for us to tell in South Africa. But in other countries that started, in South Africa, for an example, I mean, in the U.S., for an example, they have some success stories that they have documented in their research to say this vaccine is really working. Now, very quickly, just in wrapping up, are there any other vaccination programs that the department is administering in schools apart from the HPV campaign? Yes, we do have a whole lot of uh, vaccines that are being provided at schools. Remember, this is the program that is called Integrated School Health Program, where let's take the services to the, to the schools to make sure that we give them a uh, service delivery because we know that parents are not most of the time at they will come to our clinics, so we make sure that we take the service to the clinics. And one of the programs that has been taken as one of the vaccines to the to the, to the schools is DMA. Uh, we understand that we have when we are thinking uh, amongst our kids, so we are also giving kids at schools, and we are also giving them uh, tetanus uh, vaccine so that we make sure that we prevent uh, the diseases uh, in that uh, age category. But for only six years and 12 years. We have also introduced uh, the other vaccine, which is HPV, that, that is the one that we are talking about currently. But those that are below five years at schools are being given other vaccines that are not, uh, uh, that are all, always given at facilities, but because they can't reach the facility, they also get those, those vaccines at schools. Those that are in grade are most especially those that did not get measles, those that did not get their there are other vaccines according to the EPI schedule, which is the, the, the expanded program on immunization program for the Department of Health. Kilebo Khile, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you. That's Kilebo Khile Gyutayle, Manager for Women's Health in South Africa's Northwest Province, joining us on the line. Think equal, build smart, innovate for change. That's the theme of today's International Women's Day as policymakers, activists and gender equality stakeholders seek ways to use innovation to boost investment in gender responsive social systems and build public services and infrastructure to meet the growing needs of women and girls in particular. The day also comes just ahead of the start of the annual Commission on the Status of Women at the United Nations in New York, the single largest forum to build consensus on Goal 5 of the Sustainable Development Goals. Show and Bryce Peace reports. What we need to see is like how do we put these women in the driver's seat? To bring some- over 9,000 delegates are expected to descend on UN headquarters over the next two weeks, the largest single gathering here outside of the annual UN General Assembly in September starting with International Women's Day Friday that takes stock of progress and challenges in the global project for gender empowerment and equality. As the executive director of UN Women, Pumzi Lemlambungnuka explains. The thinking behind uh, the theme uh, captures the 21st century, which is an era of change that is fast, high impact, and has capacity to reach even those who will be left behind because they are furthest away. We are, however, saying that when we innovate, we have to think about those people that aren't always in the minds of those who innovate. We have to facilitate for women to be 
part of those who innovate because they will be able to focus on their own problems. If women are doing artificial intelligence, the robots will address the issues that impact on women. And we're trying to showcase the fact that women want to do this work and innovation must speak to the women's issues. She says they're seeking solutions that are both simple and complex to meet the needs of women across the globe, particularly as the focus shifts to social protection, access to public services and sustainable infrastructure as part of the CSW deliberations. The consideration uh, of policies uh, by governments that ensures that the basic infrastructure that uh, enables women to have a, a fighting chance is seen as a, a, a must-have in every country. Because if you talk about uh, access to clean water and sanitation, this has to be seen as a right mm -hmm. and it has to be made affordable and, uh, and, and free where people cannot afford uh, at all. That's the executive director of United Nations Women, Pumzilim Lambunguka, ending that report by show and Bryce Peace in New York. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoku. Good morning. South Africa's independent energy analyst, Ted Blommer, says a power utility Eskom's double-digit tariff increase is going to hurt consumers and the country's jobs industry. The National Energy Regulator announced it would be granting Eskom a 13.8% tariff hike, which comes into effect from the 1st of April. Blom says that the regulator failed to hear the cries of ordinary South Africans during its public hearings. It's going to be disastrous on the consumer and also on the jobs industry in South Africa. Uh, I don't get a double inflation increase. Nobody else does in this economy. So somebody's going to have to switch off their lights. And I think it will be more than half of South Africans are going to have to switch off their Eskom electricity because it's no longer affordable. And I'm really disappointed that NURSA has taken this approach. When during the hearings they'd indicated that they first were going to clean up Eskom before awarding them any price increase. The South African rand has taken a 1.5% drive on at the back of the European Central Bank's decision not to hike rates and South Africa's energy regulator nurse's decision to allow ESCOM a substantial 13.8% tariff increase. The rand was trading at 14 rand 55 last night. The South African currency has battled to recover since the power utility ESCOM introduced load shedding last month. Economists have warned that consumers are already feeling the weight of tax increases and a declining standard of living and that the new ESCOM tariff increases will only make, make matters worse. Rwanda's horticulture exports have increased from $5 million U.S. dollars in 2005 to $25 million in 2018, occasioned by new products on the market. The Ministry of Agriculture and Animal Resources says in 2018, vegetables generated $12.9 million in foreign exchange revenue, while fruit shipped in $7.8 million and flowers $4.1 million. 
This reflects a significant rise compared to the previous year's exports when vegetables generated more than $11 million, fruit $4.6 million, and flowers generated $1.2 million. Raw milk import quantities have tumbled by close to 200% over the past two years in Lesotho. Due to a drastic increase in local production, the developments have also increased the earnings of local dairy farmers as the share of money spent on the purchase of raw milk improved from 46% of the total sales in 2016-17 to 79% in the 2018-19 financial year. This was said by the Lesotho National Dairy Board. The governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria, Godun Mefiele, has reacted to reports that he has been relieved of his position, saying he has not been sacked by the federal government. Mefiele made the clarification while responding to a question on his status during a meeting with textile stakeholders in Abuja. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.39 Nigerian Naira. 10.45 Botswana Pula, 99.16 Kenyan Shilling, and at 11.98 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 3.85 Brazilian roll, 66.2 Russian ruble, 69.95 Indian rupee, 6.72 Chinese yuan, and 13.36 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold $1,287, platinum $813 pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at $65.84 a barrel. It's Channel Africa. Our sports updates up next with Figle Lingwati. First up in our sports update, we kick off with netball news. Netball South Africa NSA Chief Executive Officer Blanche de la Guerre says South Africa's legacy program and investment in Africa made the country to win the 2023 World Cup bid. Cape Town was announced as the host city for the global event beating New Zealand uh, City Auckland. New Zealand had already hosted the event three times before. And in football news, South African Premiership side, Orlando Pirates, have one mission in their last CAF Champions League Group B home against FC Platinum this evening at Orlando Stadium south of Johannesburg. And that's to return to the second sport. Pirates are up against the Zimbabwean champions who are yet to pick up a win and score a goal in the group stages this season. Pirates are currently third in Group B, five points, sitting two points behind Horoya after losing to group leaders Esperance 2-0 in the last game. With two games to go, head coach Milotin Major Sreyodevi shares the importance of going back to a favorable position for the quarterfinals after tonight's clash. 
We give self-respect to ourselves. We have worked very hard to bring ourselves in position to go to the quarterfinals. We have been until last match in the position that leads us to quarterfinals. Now that we have brought ourselves in position that we need to win, it is when the tough gets going, going gets tough. Pull the sleeves, pull the socks, come on the field, uh, prove the point, give you the best, win the match because uh, uh, it is half door supposed to be open tomorrow and next half door to enter in quarterfinals next Saturday in Conakry. In the past four matches, FC Platinum have only picked up point from the draw with Pirates. They are yet to win and also yet to score a single so far. Head coach Norman Mapesa says it's been an interesting learning curve so far. It was a difficult journey for us since we started this uh, this tournament, but I think it was a very good learning curve for us. You no, know, we have gained so much in terms of experience. We have gained a lot. You no, know, we have been involved in uh, difficult games against I think against everybody knows against uh, Esperance, which is the current holders uh, of Chef uh, Champions League for as well. I think everybody knows that they were they, they lost in the quarterfinals last 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 uh, last term. Then uh, Orlando Pirates, everybody knows Orlando Pirates is a big club in South Africa and uh, they also won this uh, tournament some few years ago. But it was a good tournament for us, although we haven't won any single game. And uh, you know, message to the boys has been the same. Let's go and push and see how we can go in our last two matches of the tournament. In rugby news, South African rugby side Lions coach Vase the Brain says the plethora of changes he has made are largely rotational, with many senior players out of form. The Brain has placed his faith in a group of young players, which include junior Springbok sensation Wandisi Lesmelani, starting at outside centre Juan Fermark at lock, and Vincent Chituga at flank, while Nathan Macbeth, James Fender, and Tyrone Green will start on the bench in Saturday Super Rugby Clash against the Jaguares. And lastly, with cricket news, the South Africa's under-19s fell agonizingly short of their first win in the youth one-day international quadrangular series following defeat by one run at the hands of India, under-19s B in Trivadrum. Impressive half-centuries from Ruan Treblanche and Andile Mohakane looked to have set up the victory for the young stars before three catastrophic runouts in the final over an impressive bowling from Sushant Mishra restricted them to 197 for nine. After winning the toss and electing to bet first, the home side was bowled out for 198 in 49.1 overs after a fine display from the South African bowling attack. Debutant Sia Plachi shone with the ball, grabbing figures of 3 for 40 alongside Bryce Parsons, 2 for 36, and Jared Jardine, 2 for 41. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories in Africa, Raza and Charlotte Asawa, South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa faces tough questions in Parliament and UN Commission on the Status of Women meets in New York. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Komutsu Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-63-003327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. I'm taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Shimza featuring Mishka with a song titled African Woman. Happy International Women's Day. Oh, my goodness.